911, what's your emergency? Welcome to Life Beyond the Sirens podcast. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Stories and advice from frontline workers. Hey guys, and welcome back to Life Beyond the Sirens podcast. Uh, Today we got Brian Collins on, a certified financial planner. Before we get to the episode today, I just want to do a quick shout out to some of our show sponsors. First up is Firehouse Training. I can't really say enough good things about this company. If you're looking to get into the fire service and need some help, definitely look at Firehouse Training. Adam McFadden, the founder of Firehouse Training, is so passionate. He's a career firefighter. He's a hazmat tech. He knows the stuff inside out. And the stuff that they're teaching here is second to none. It's amazing. You can get anything from resume to cover letters, aptitude test tutoring, mock interview coaching, uh, NFPA certification test review, OFAI, skills test preparation. They offer it all. So if you're looking to get into the fire service, like I said, check them out. It's going to be a game changer for you. You can also check out Firehouse Training. They're going to be at the Hazmat Central 2023 this year. So essentially Ontario's premier conference for Hazmat, as well as they have a Hazmat and Terrorism Response Tactics for Emergency Services course coming up this month. So check them out on Instagram under Firehouse Training and sign up for these courses. It's great information and will help progress your career. Second up is First Response Coffee Company, and their mission is really to provide the highest quality coffee to help our heroes on the front lines operate at the highest level. And they definitely do just that. I have one before each shift, and it helps me power through at least my morning there, and then I'll probably have another one in the afternoon as well. But they have lots of different roasts, so whether you like a light roast, a dark roast, they have everything. And it's all fair trade coffee, which feels good because you know it's coming from a good source. And a part of it goes back to support first responders across Canada and Ontario. It's a great company for a great cause as well. So give them a follow and order your coffee online at First Response Coffee Company. Lastly, we have the cold protocol. So if you guys are looking for ways to improve your overall health, uh, whether it be for muscle recovery after exercise, boost your immune system, reduce inflammation, increase energy, promote better sleep, have cognitive benefits, you're going to want to check out the cold protocol. They have affordable, well-built tubs I use one four to five times a week. All you need is two minutes. It's agony while you're in there, but you feel like a million bucks once you get out and it really jumpstarts your day. Uh, Again, at night, it'll help you sleep better. There's so many benefits. So go over and check out the cold protocol and use sirens for 30% off. If you're anything like me, when I was younger, I was addicted to the stocks. I didn't really know how to invest, when to invest, what to invest in. Um, I went along for the emotional roller coaster with the stock markets. I was checking multiple times a day. Uh, I didn't really know what I was looking for, or I didn't know how to break down the news that I was receiving on my stock apps. And it was very tough emotionally. Uh, it was draining and I wasn't really having a lot of fun doing it. Um, so this episode is going to be great for anybody looking to get the basics of investing, finding out about their TFSAs. There are SPs, there are ESPs. If you have children, that's a great option as well. Uh, What to do to set yourself up for retirement and all that good stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoy the episode. Without further ado, I'll uh, kick it over to Brian now. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me, Tim. Today, we just kind of want to go over what are some investment strategies for newcomers to maybe just even getting their life started as far as like starting from the ground up, you have a couple hundred dollars a month that you can invest. You don't have any other investments right now. You're fresh out of university or college. 
or you're just getting into your career, you've just paid off your student loans. I guess what are some investment strategies or what should somebody be doing who's just getting into investment now? Well, when you're just getting in, the uh, basic accounts people start with are the tax-free savings accounts and the RRSPs are typically where people begin. There's a great new product that's just come out this year. It's a first-time homebuyer savings account. That's, that's going to be a really, really big account for people that want to save up for their first home. You can get RSP deductions and tax-free growth at the same time. So that's going to be a fantastic account for people to start out in. And what is that? Like that seems like it's been around for a while. Like there's always no. been a, a first new home buyer. Yeah, there's been the um, first time home buyers where you could use your RSP contributions to buy a home. Right. But now what they've started is a specific account where you can deposit $8,000 a year up to a maximum, I believe it's thirty five or 40000 and it can grow tax-free. So if you use it to buy a home down the road, it's tax-free growth. You never pay tax on it. And you can only use it to buy a home or can you use that for... No, it's it's to buy a home specifically. Okay. But if you don't buy a home in a specified amount of time, it can roll into your RSP room without affecting your contribution room as well. So it can be retirement savings, but you can use it for a home too without any kind of penalties or tax... Right. Can you still, because when I bought my first home, I used some of my RRSP Mm -hmm. money to buy it. Yeah. So can you use that on top of this new one? As of right now, yes. I don't know if that's going to change because it's so new. It always, things come in and then the government makes little changes here and there. But as of right now, I'm 99% sure you can double up on it. And is that active now? And we're in Ontario for anybody listening that's in a different uh, province or state. Yeah, this is a federal plan. Okay. So it's it's Canada wide. Um, so it came into legislation in April. Now, like I know the company I work for, we're just waiting for the regulators and everything to approve the paperwork to open these accounts. Um, I'm being told that's as early as this month. So it should be a new account. So if you're right. a first time home buyer, um, instead of putting into your RSPs, this might be a better route to go if you only have a little bit each month because you'll get your RSP deduction on your taxes but you won't use your RSP contribution room and it can be used for a home. So for argument's sake, so if I'm like a 20 year old, yep. so after four years, that's eight, 16, so 32,000 yep. that you could have saved up in four years. Um, what happens if I'm not ready to buy a house at 24 and I want to buy one at like 27 or 28? Just sits and grows. It just sits and grows, but you yep. can't add any more after 35,000. Uh, it's 35 or 40. I got to, okay. I got to check. So you have five or six possible yeah. years of growth. Yeah. Or of, of, uh, of contributions plus the growth. And you can invest it in anything. You can invest your RSP or TFSA in. So is there a, so you can take that and invest it in the stock market or mutual funds. Mutual like funds. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's going to be a, a really good new account. So, so now parents, if they want to help their kids down the road, buy a home, but they're not going to have, you know, hundred thousand dollars sitting around, they can help their kids by contributing to this as of 18 let okay. that build up and then okay so you can't i can't set one up for my daughter who's seven not until you're 18 i have to wait until yeah. she's 18 and then yeah yeah you have to wait till 18 but even then like if you do it for four years or five years i mean you're going to be 23 a lot of people aren't ready to buy a house at 23 exactly. yet they're just getting out of school so even if you had another five years of growth on top of that so that's to say even if you make no growth there's going to be, let's say, a $40,000 down payment for a house right there with no growth. And is this something that they did uh, because of the housing market that's yeah. gone so crazy? Yeah, because of the costs and uh, they're finding people aren't able to save up down payments. Uh, they're not able to put money aside for that. So now they're trying to incentivize through 
tax breaks and that sort of thing to get people saving to buy a home. Well, that's just it. Like a lot of the time people nowadays are buying, it's like the bank of mom and dad, Mm -hmm. or if you're lucky enough to have that option. Exactly. Not everybody is right. Right. Or it's just multi-generational families, like all moving in, like Mm -hmm. you're seeing those nanny suites in the basements and stuff like that. Um, the little kitchenettes and whatnot, yep. like, cause people are living down there as well and they're all just com- pooling their money together. Well, and that's just it. And it's not like rent is a super cheap option these days either. So no, or you're seeing like the legal duplexes or uh, legal basements mm-hmm. where they have people renting now in the basement. Like it, that wasn't always enough. No, people are giving up their basement to help with their mortgage right now. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, it's becoming more and more common. Um, so I think this is just another way government's trying to help people to save to right start their own home ownership because it's a very strong north american mentality home ownership right and you were mentioning about the tax-free savings account the rrsps what's the difference so a tax-free savings account uh you can start one when you're 18 again there's a limited contribution per year right now it's 6500 6900 i think today i think it's 7000 this year because it jumps up by $500 intervals okay. based on inflation growing. Yeah. Um, so if you were eligible for the maximum amount right now, you could contribute $88,000 into a TFSA. Um, and the nice thing about it is it grows tax-free. When you take it out, there's no tax implications, but you don't get the tax credit and benefits right up front like you would with an RSP. Right. Um, an RSP is a retirement savings plan. Um, so it's intended that you put it in And then when you're retiring, you use it to create an income stream and it's fully taxable when you do draw it out at any time. So you get the the theory behind it is um, you're putting in while you're working, getting a tax uh, rebate based on potentially higher income than when you retire. So then when you retire, you're paying tax, but it's going to be a lower tax bracket. So it's it's deferring the tax bill is what the strategy with that is. Is there one that's better than the other? I know like if you're going to do, I don't think there is, but it's either pay me now, pay me later kind of thing. If you do the RRSP and you get that, you're going to get a bigger tax refund. Yeah. It's that's just not fun money. Like that's money that you're going to have to pay later on. Is it not? Um, Technically, yes, like but you when, should be investing that money that you get from your refund. If you want to maximize the use of that RSP, like I'd say put in your RSP, whatever the refund is, throw that in your TFSA because then you're going to get the tax-free growth on the refund and then you're maximizing the benefit of the RSP. Right. Because, yeah, it's just you're, you're pushing off the tax bill. It, it's coming. Um, when, the year you turn 72, you have to start drawing, even if you're working. So at some point, you're going to have to pay those taxes. So you want to use it as a strategy to defer it and pay a lower tax amount than you would. That's why I say when people are like 18, 19, 20, if they're in the lowest tax bracket, sometimes the RSP is not the best option. They're better to let it accumulate until they're making more and maximize on the TFSA if they're limited in uh, how much they have to deposit. Like obviously if you can max out both, you're in a great spot, do it. But you know, if when you're making lower income, you're not going to get a tax advantage on the RSP other than the refund. So if you wait until you're in your career making, let's say you're in the second tax bracket now, now you're getting a little bit more of a benefit from it. So Right now, for younger people, I'd say start with the TFSA and start with this first-time homebuyer savings account uh, because you get the RSP refund without having to use your RSP room, and it's not going to be taxable when you use it to buy a home. Right. So that's kind of the strategy now with that new tool. It's just a another new approach. So okay, and can can you go over some of the like 
the disadvantages or just think some things to be cautious of when opening a TFSA or investing in it. Cause I know if you take money out of it, mm-hmm. you lose that room or at least for that year you do. Yeah. On TFSA, the room, uh, the contribution room replenishes the following calendar year. So it does have a little bit more flexibility. Whereas if you put it into an RSP and then pull it out, unless it's the first time home buyers withdrawal, but if you just pull it out cause you need money, that contribution room has gone. And the money you pull out is fully taxable and added to your income this year. So if you think it's money you're going to need, an RSP is not where you want to put it. Like if you're saving for a car, that's when a TFSA is a good idea or if something along those lines. So you just have to be conscious of uh, the tax implications and how it can affect you if you need that money. It's like an RSP is not good for an emergency fund. Right. Like and not a good option. So even if you put, let's say, like you said, I'm 31 now, so yep. I can put in $88,000 into my yep. TFSA. So if that grows to hopefully I pick a, a winner stock mm-hmm. and then it goes up to 150,000 or something like that. And I take it all out. I can't put $150,000 back in. Correct. I can only put back 88. No. Uh, so there's like a little loophole in that first year. If you put the 150 back in the following calendar year, last I read, you can, but if it's beyond that, it's just the 88. So there's, there's a little oh. loophole that CRE is probably going to close, but. Oh, I didn't know that because every because everybody I've ever talked to is like well, most people can't afford to put the ton amount, the whole amount back in, right? Um, and even if you don't have the money to put back into the contribution room, it replenishes and you can add it at any time. It's not a if you don't use it, you lose it situation each year. Okay, it does accumulate, so there is a little loophole. If you pull it all out, you can slap it all back in, but right, it's it's very rare that can be used. So I don't really bring that up too too much to people so what should or what do you what advice would you give somebody when they're looking to invest in different stocks like fresh out of school not knowing much about Mm -hmm. the stock market are you going into like an index fund like an sp uh, p 500 or are you picking like five things that you're interested in like an apple nvidia like things that are going to be the future Um, are you going with like a proctor gamble because they make like laundry detergent, they make stuff that you need yeah, every they, single they, day. The thing about those steady eddy stocks like the Procter & Gamble that is that you don't usually catch a hot run. Sometimes there's something that happens in the world that creates an opportunity, but typically it's like almost like a Canadian bank stock. Like you're going to make a steady amount. If you're looking to shoot the lights out, that's when like tech stocks and stuff like that come into play because if they hit the right product at the right time, they can just run for massive gains. But you know, with that, they can also... Well, I think you were telling me the other day, like, which makes sense. Once you hear as like the kind of bottom consumer, Mm -hmm. everybody else has already had their hands in the, in their, in the pie, right? Yeah. When you've hear, heard about that can't miss stock, it's already had a lot of money made off it by the big boys, like the pension funds, they, they get in there quick, especially when there's a, a new release, they get more or less first dibs at it. So a lot of the big money gets made before the average person hears about it. Well, I remember the, uh, I think it was, maybe, I don't know, maybe back in like 2017 or 18, the Tilray mm-hmm. stock, it had one day where it went from $20 up to 300 yeah. or $400 and everybody was trying to get in. Or, or that was IPO day. Yeah, like it's yeah. huge. And there was another one's like Beyond Meat mm-hmm. was another craze. And I mean, look at it now. It's Yeah, so pretty much it shoots way up. And then the big, the big buyers kind of sell it off in chunks to make those profits for their pensions, for their funds. And then it kind of the table scraps more or less are left to the average consumer like you and I. Yeah. I, I always found it was like a lot, it was very beneficial for me 
to have somebody kind of manage my money because it stopped me from doing that knee jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. I see stuff that roller coaster ride because now I could log into a online trading site and do the trading myself, but I'm already 15 minutes delayed on my site. So I'm not even getting the, the real time value of the stock, right? Where yeah. at least if I'm doing something or sorry, if I'm calling a financial guy, he can at least talk me out of it, calm me down. And at worst case, like he has to do it for me. So it stops me from doing all those impulses. Yeah, it takes a, a lot of the emotional swings out of it. Because if you watch the markets, they're kind of behaving how they normally did before governments were pumping a lot of money into them with their quantitative easing and that, where throughout the day, they're up and down, up and down. It's So trying to time it is so difficult. So day traders, my hat's off to them. I would not be able to do it. That's got to be a stressful gig, but... You know, well, if you're good at it, you can do very well. Well, it's funny because sometimes like a uh, stock will come out with big news that you think is going to be like, wow, that's really mm-hmm. good. And then it just goes down 6%. Yeah, like, because the uh, the big holders have a better idea of what that news is going to be. I'm not saying there's insider trading by any means, but they have more analysts than that to assess what could be coming. Whereas the average consumer just has to rely on what they see in stock media and that sort of thing. Right. So, you know... the the smarter the people are looking into it, obviously the more educated of a decision they can make. Right. Whereas all you hear is big announcement, but that big announcement could be their share splitting or they're cutting off 20% of their company or they're going to be laying off 15,000 employees. So it could right. have a negative effect on the stock. Oh, okay. So they just say big announcement. They don't say whether it's a positive or negative announcement. Right. So what's a good like strategy? Like should, like I said, people be buying one stock and just be like, Hey, this is, my favorite company, mm-hmm. I want to just kind of ride and die with that? Or should you be spreading it out and diversifying? And if so, what's a good amount of diversity? Is it five stocks, 10 stocks, 15? Um, yeah, you're, you're typically always better to diversify because if all your eggs in one basket, it can go bad quick. Um, I don't sell individual stocks. I deal with mutual funds, which is pretty much a basket of stocks developed by a a fund manager who kind of does all the research, picks all the stocks, does all the trades. Um, But yeah, you want to hold, um, depending on the amount of money you have, uh, like you don't want to, if you have a thousand dollars, you're not looking to have 10 holdings. Like let's, let's not kid ourselves here. That's just over diversified. You're not going to get any advantage when one actually has a a big run. But yeah, you want to have like for the average starting buyer, like let's say you had $10,000, I, anywhere five to 10 stocks would probably be plenty. Like if somebody comes in with $25,000, they're going in one mutual fund with me. I'm not splitting amongst like three or four funds because it's just like right. what's going on here. You can over diversify for the amount of money you have. Right. And so, what is exactly like a, a mutual fund? Like what you were just describing is what I would think of as a ETF, which like I would go on yeah. and look at, I think it's Kathy Woods, um, like tech ETF. She has a, a, a few different ones that mm-hmm. she manages and has like 50 of the top tech stocks in it. And I love that. Yeah. And, and typically, yeah, they'll follow a pattern of where we own the 50 like top blue chip stocks or we follow the S&P 500 where they kind of kind of bet on a, a market more or less. Um, but a mutual fund, yeah, you have a, a fund manager who has a specific strategy that's laid out in the uh, writings of the fund. Uh, and then they buy and sell based on, you know, their strategy and timing. Um, obviously, years it can go down. Last year was a year where 
a lot went down. It was a, it was a tough market year. Uh, but you know, typically when they're diversified and managed well, like when you average it out over a length of time, you're, if you get a good fund manager with a good strategy, you should be averaging positive numbers. Right. No, that makes sense. And like, I guess some of the biggest advice that I would give to somebody, cause I learned from my own mistakes is like, I used to check, I was almost, I, I guess I would say I was addicted to the stocks when I was younger mm-hmm. and I would check five, 10, 15, 20 times a day. Not that it matters. I wasn't thinking about pulling my money out or doing anything, but it's that little dopamine hit yeah. where you get when you're like, Oh, it was at like half a percent up. Now it's three and a half percent up. Yeah. Like this is amazing. I guess the big, like how often do you check? I mean, you work there. So, I mean, yeah, I guess checking it once a month would, or once every few weeks would be more than enough. Oh yeah. Like right now I just put some of my money into a a new fund for the book, a business that I run. Like, so I check it a little more frequently just to kind of see how it's moving. But yeah, like I tell people all the time, especially with mutual funds, because it's not a constant changing price. It changes once a day. Like if it's money that's in there for your retirement and you're 25, you don't need to check it very often. And if you have a a good advisor, if they know a problem's coming with that fund or if they think there's material changes that matter, they're going to contact you. Like, obviously, they can't predict if it's going to go up and down every year. And like I said, last year, even low-risk funds got beat up. So there are years it's going to go down. You can't hit a winner every year. But typically, when you work with fund companies, they give you the heads up if, you know, this fund might be seeing a management change or material change or, you know, this one might be more suitable. Like they work with you, the companies, uh, because the better job they do for you, their theory is you'll work with them. Right. So another thing that I always get asked at work or sometimes uh, through families and friends, like obviously we have a pension. What are some good investment strategies for like first responders, people who have pensions? Mm -hmm. Is there something that you recommend? Yeah. So pensions change up the tax strategy of investing in a hurry. Um, because right now there's a pension split with taxes, but I still like to plan like that's not going to be there. Um, so one thing I, I tell people to do is if you're married, uh, so you have a partner in that you can invest in a spousal RSP. So you'll still get the tax benefit of it, but the money will be invested in your spouse's name. So in retirement, when that money's being drawn out, it's actually taxable to the spouse. Whereas if it was just an RSP for you, all that's taxable to you. You can bump up a tax bracket. You can potentially cause old age security clawback. So, you know, you want to try to split the income as much as you can in retirement, again, to keep the tax bill to a minimum. So that's one strategy I'd take. Um, And then I like clients of mine that are teachers and that I'm always telling them like max out your TFSA because you want money that you can access if you need to fix your roof, if you need to fix a furnace. Um, whereas if you're on a pension, it's fixed income coming in. And if you're right. not accumulating, if it's just enough to cover your expenses, you need something to draw from. So right. like a tax-free savings account is fantastic if you have a pension, because if you draw from it, it won't affect your taxable income. Right. You were saying th- about the splitting. Mm-hmm. Can you also like another good investment strategy or maybe it's not an investment, but a way to protect your money is splitting your income between husband and wife or like partners? Like for tax purposes? Yeah. You, you can't do that anymore. Oh, you can't? No, there were a couple of years you could. They got rid of that pretty quick. They were, they were losing a lot of money. So if you're married with kids, you were able to split the household income. Right. You can't do that anymore. 
Oh, I think that lasted two, maybe three years. Oh, I thought that was like for like a long time. That was no, they they got rid of that pretty quick. They were they were losing they were losing some money on that one. And that's why I think they're gonna at some point eliminate the pension split because with the baby boomers going into retirement, you know, you could see a lot of tax revenue lost, and with the amount of debt we have and the spending we have, I it's an easy way to get some tax revenue without adding new taxes. You're just taxing the income how it should have been taxed. Right. Do you have any uh, like big favorite companies that you tend to look for in portfolios or anything like that without saying it's a good stock or yeah, a good yeah, investment? Yeah. Um, like I'm, I'm personally a big fan of dividend paying companies um, and dividend paying mutual funds. Uh, which is what for people out there listening that don't so, know. So dividends are income that are paid to you as a holder of a stock or a fund. So they'll pay you money, whether it's monthly, quarterly, annually, um, just for holding. Whether that stock goes up, down. Yeah, yeah. So like we have mutual funds now that, um, like the one I put my money into recently, uh, I think it pays almost 8% annual. Is that good? Dividends. So that's, so if, if the if the fund doesn't move, Let's say the markets are zero that year. They don't move. It's still going to get 8% either reinvested for you or you can have it paid out to you. Because that company's profitable. So mm-hmm. they're giving some of their profits yeah. back to their shareholders. Exactly. So like the banks pay consistent and consistent dividends are key. Um, mm-hmm. Like the Microsofts of the world pay consistent dividends. Um, like look at a guy like uh, Warren Buffett. Like I think he made $535 million in dividends just from his coca-cola stock last year crazy like he made 535 million just to hold their stock and the stock went up in value too so he still made that profit as well so it's almost like uh it's just a little bit of passive income that's built into it so is it common that a company might try to expand too rapidly and introduce a dividend and then claw it back is that is that a worry uh, it can happen. And that's why I say looking for consistent dividends because you don't want a company that was struggling. So then offered a dividend to try to get new investment money in. Um, so you want to look at the dividend track record. Like I said, the Canadian banks, fantastic track record, like the Microsofts of the world, that sort of thing, like the blue chip companies. If it's a brand new company that's just barely out of the venture capital stage, I'm not putting much merit in their dividend. It might happen. Great. But you're not investing in you're not investing in a young company for consistent income. You're investing in a young company to try to hit a runner. Right. Right. So it's just a different approach. Yeah. Like, but like individual stock companies, like you look at the, you look at a, just try to find a company that either a, the world can't live without or B is going to change the world for the better. Um, Like I know you like Tesla, uh, the stock, like, you know, they're, they're, they spend a lot of time trying to innovate things some people agree with it. Some people don't, uh, the practices, but at least they're putting forward attempts in energy and automotive. And so well, I think not, they're just like, they're right on the cusp of getting that auto steering mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, the like, autonomous driving in that. It's going to be huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, when you bet on these big technology, you got to bet on the first one to the race. Right, right. Because whoever gets it first is going to make the big money, and then everybody else is going to make money. They're going to make a profit. Because uh, typically, the first one there makes some big money, then the second person tweaks it a little. So, like AI is going to be a big one. Well, that's what even talking to my financial guy now, like he's saying that AI is obviously going to be huge. I use it every, mm-hmm. 
a lot of people I know use it. Oh, the chat GPT or whatever chat it's called? GPT is great. Yeah. But um, it's all the chips that go into yeah. running that stuff. Well, guess who makes it? AMD mm-hmm. and NVIDIA. Yeah. And that's, um, there's a, Fidelity has a fantastic fund manager named Mark Schmel. And I remember I heard him speak, must have been four or five years ago now. And uh, in his holding, he said, instead of trying to buy the company that breaks AI, like that, they're, they're the ones that do it. He bets on the companies that make these chips that you can't do it without. So whoever comes up with it needs those chips. So he knows I'm going to make a certain amount of profit off of that. It might not be the big swing if I happen to pick right, but he goes, I know I'm going to make this. That's the smart investment move right now. And that's what he does. He tries to, um, like a lot of managers will buy stock as if they're buying the company. So they'll look into the financials. Because these guys are investing massive amounts of money. It's not like 100,000 is not even in play for these guys. Like they're investing hundreds of millions at times. So right. they, they look at these purchases as if they're buying the company. So, and that's a good way when you're thinking of a stock, like is this a company you'd be willing to buy into? Because that's what you're doing, right? So if you, like some people um, talk a lot about like ethical investing, they won't invest in, you know, alcohol, tobacco, someone invest in oil, that sort of thing. Right. So if you're not willing to buy into that, why would you buy the stock for it? Right. It's like kind of that approach, right? If you have that, like if you think, you know, Apple is going to be a thing of the past in three years, well, why would you buy the stock? Yeah. You should be doing the like, essentially buy and hold yeah. strategy for it's you no know, five, 10 years. Yeah, like this is money that you don't, you shouldn't need for mm-hmm. 10 years because you want to get that long time growth. Yeah. Because if it is a good investment, the longer you hold it, the better the averages work out for you. Right. Whereas if you bought a really good company at the start of a year, like last year, well, everybody had a bad year. Right. So you might emotional sell off and then miss out on the run. Well, I think it's like every, every year there's like six to 10 days of the market that make or break your portfolio in the long run. Like you could, yeah. So if you sell at emotionally at certain times and you miss a huge day, like, well, that will, that'll cripple you or seriously, lower your outcome at the end oh yeah and and you're not wrong with that six day there's there's only a few days that make or break your year so buying and holding is you know 99.999 percent of the time is the best strategy for the average investor like if you get those day traders it's kind of what they do but how many of them well lose a lot i mean go download one of those uh trading apps and try and do it for yourself yeah play play with a thousand dollars and watch how fast it goes Exactly. I mean, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. Exactly. Whereas, you know, anybody can invest in, and that's why I like the mutual fund approach because you just have to look at this manager's track record. You're investing in that manager and their team. You don't have to pick a company. You're investing in their strategy and let them pick the good companies. Right. Because, you know, it, it affects how they get paid. They want the fund to make money. I guess one of the biggest thing is too, is like, there's so many for, uh, we're going to keep talking about tech for a minute, but yep. like there's so many different tech companies out there that are like flashy, but they're not even profitable yet. Mm-hmm. So they could easily fluctuate in price and stock price so yep. much. So it's, yeah, I've learned this the hard way again, but like buy companies that are profitable and their fluctuations, those big blue chip stocks mm-hmm. are going to be like your Coca-Cola, you said, or Procter and Gamble or yeah. other good ones. It's going to be not as sexy but it's going to be a long-term 
Yeah. You're not going to have that brag buy. No. Oh, I hit that at 10 cents. Now it's worth $14. (laughs) Like I knew it would run. No, you didn't. You got lucky. Like, yeah, I'm one of those. I don't want big swings. I want that steady climb. Like I'm here right now. This is where I want to be. How do I get there as smooth as possible? Right. That's kind of the way I approach it because why add extra stress? Well, that's what it is. To it's, investing. It's the stress. Then your family's going to feel that and you're yeah. going to be stressed out to the max. Like you said, you're going to be short with people when you really mm-hmm. shouldn't be. Well, and what if all of a sudden you need that money? Right. And it's on a downswing. Right. Now it's not advantageous to take it out at all. Right. But you have to. Yeah. Right. So, and again, like when you have an emergency fund, you don't have to try to run the gauntlet. Like I have a fund where it pays 4.35% right now annual and it's a high interest savings account type strategy. Right. It fluctuates with interest rates, but if you need money that might be accessible, it's great to dump it in there. And then the money you don't need accessible, that's where you try to hit with. You got to, part of diversification is risk. Like you want to make sure you're controlling multiple risk avenues and coming up with a game plan depending on scenarios. Right. Well, Dave Ramsey, uh, he always says to have your emergency fund before you do anything. Yeah. So have a thousand dollars minimum. That way, if you need car repair or something like that. Wow. Yeah, that's for. So it depends on your definition of an emergency fund. Like some people say an emergency fund is six months of your income. Right. Well, so that's if just you lose this. your job or something. But yes, you should always have. I think he said like a couple thousand dollars set aside because yeah. if you need to replace your bumper. Well, that's going to be more than a thousand. You know what I mean? Like, and or that, the deductible, that's what yeah. I mean. Or if you need winter tires, yeah, like thousand dollars gets eaten up pretty quick these days, right? So, yeah, I'd recommend if for something like that for a quick bill, having a couple thousand, right? What are some other good accounts to uh, invest in, or maybe not invest in, but have like your for children's education? Yeah. I know that's one. Yeah, so RESPs are a fantastic option for that. Um, you can put 2500 a year per child um, and get 20% grant on that 2500 uh, Depending on your income level, it can fluctuate um, if you're a lower income, but a uh, rule of thumb is you're going to get every 2500 you put in a year, you're going to get 500 of free money. Um, and then it can grow and everything. When it's drawn out, it's taxed to the beneficiary, so the child. So while they're in school, um, it's not going to be much of a tax bill at all for them. So right. it's, it's a nice way to put aside for them. And it, it doesn't have to be used when they're 18. It can sit around longer than that. It can be used for trade school. Um, there's a lot, a lot more options with it, but it's a fantastic way to save for kids' education. And do you have one for each child or is there a family one or which way would be more beneficial for the average family? The average family, yeah, I'd recommend doing the family account because let's say you have two kids. Uh, If one goes to school and one doesn't, if they're individual accounts, the one that doesn't go to school, you can't use that one's money for the other child for their schooling. Whereas in a family, you can draw it out for one, both. So $2,500 each in a single account. Can you put 5,000 or is it still 2,500? It's 2,500 per child. Okay. So So why why would anybody ever do the single investment one? Some people like, like to separate everything. Be like, this is your money. This is their money. If you run out, that's your problem. You're not taking your sister or brother's education money. Right. It all depends on how people want to approach it. Oh, that's fair. Um, like, yeah. like So let's say two kids, Johnny and Mary. Mm-hmm. If Mary doesn't go to school, yeah, does she get that money that plus the interest that it gained or 
like for non-educational purposes. Yeah, because eventually so, you're not just going to let it sit in there forever. You're going to yeah, take the, it out. The, yeah, and there are rules to do that. There are time frames to do that. You have to pay back the grant. Um, it is taxable. So that's that again, that's where the family plan comes in nice if there's multiple children because um, it can be used for the other child then. Right, because and this covers more than just like tuition. This covers anything related all, to all school. All you need is proof of education, like proof of enrollment. And you can take it out for computers. You can take it out for a car. The only limitation comes the first semester. There's only a certain amount of grant you can pull out. And what do you mean? So there's so the grant money is that free money. So they restrict how much grant you can pull out the first semester. It's just just a rule they have. But then after the first semester, you can you could drain the account if you wanted to. In the uh, first semester of the first year. The second semester. Second semester. Okay. Yeah. So th- there right. are there are a couple rules, but. Um, yeah, it's got a lot of flexibility to it. Um, and I definitely recommend for the average family doing a family style account because you can, even if you only have one child, you can set up a family RESP. And then if you have a second, you just add their name to it. Right. And if, and for the people that are worried about keeping everything separate, we'll pick two different funds. So, you know, this fund is child A, this fund is child B. Like you can go that route within the same account. Um, if if you're worried about keeping it fair that way. Uh, but the, the nice thing is, is to have that flexibility. So if, like, you know, let's say one child's an athlete and gets a scholarship. Well, they don't need that money. Right. So, you know, just give it to them just because they should. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Switching gears to back to kind of first responders gearing up for like, let's say five to eight years before retirement. Okay. Is there certain things that they should be looking to do to maximize their retirement or uh, better prepare themselves to go into retirement? Um, well, you should understand your pension and how it works. Uh, it's amazing how many people that have pensions don't understand it fully. Like, like with yours, I haven't looked at it, but I know you're going to have uh, a bridge benefit to it. Which is what? So... Let's say you're eligible to retire at 55, unreduced. Like it all depends on what age you started, that sort of thing. They'll give you, let's say for a round number, your pension is 40,000, your bridge is 15,000. So you're going to get $55,000 as a pension payment. Okay, again, these are just numbers. I know it's not accurate. It's probably more than that. But um, when you turn 65, the bridge goes away. So now your pension is only going to pay you 40 with the anticipation that CPP will now step in and make up the difference. So it's almost like an early CPP without calling it that to keep your income as consistent as can be once you turn 65. Some people will take CPP early at 60. Um, you do, there is a penalty to that, obviously. Uh, it's about 35% that you lose, yeah, like 0.6% per month right. is the penalty, and that continues. So like some people, they don't think they're going to live long, so they take CPP early. Right. Um, I know, I know people that wait till they're 70 when they have to start taking because they don't need it. And it actually grows a little bit too. Right. So what would be like an average age? It'd be like, Hey, if I'm going to live past 80, it's better to wait or. Well, again, when you have the bridge pension, I always recommend. And what are we talking like hundreds of dollars or a thousand dollars? Pretty much. You're losing a third of it. Okay. So if it's 1200 a month, you're going to be losing 400 a month. By taking it early. By taking it at 60. Right, but, so but how many years do you get it early? Five? You can take it up to five years early. Five early. Okay. And so whenever you take it, the penalty is just 0.6% per month. Right. And that penalty continues your whole life. It doesn't disappear at any time. Um, and the one thing that you have to worry about when you have that bridge is some people, 
have the bridge, take their CPP at 60. And then all at 65, all of a sudden your income just dropped because the bridge goes away and you don't have the CPP to offset it anymore. Right. So some people aren't prepared for that income drop at that time. It all comes down to what your needs are, uh, your life situation. So yeah, definitely between five, 10 years from retirement, you should be starting to look at your pension. So you understand exactly what's coming your way at what age, um, knowing how it works, you know, using other strategies if need be as well. Like if you have your RSPs, let's say you bought RSPs and you have the pension. Well, you might be better off now not even taking CPP at 65, drawing out the RSPs so it's a little more tax efficient. And then your CPP is going to grow by 7% a year. Right. Like I can't guarantee your RSP is going to grow 7% a year, but your CPP will. Right. So, you know, there are strategies in that regard. If you want to control your income longer and get your RSPs out more tax efficiently, every scenario is a little different. Everybody's income is a little different. So it's something you should definitely sit down with your your advisor with and look at those numbers and see what's most suitable to you. Okay. Is there any other last bit of advice that you would give anybody looking to invest or set themselves up financially for the future Mm -hmm. that maybe we didn't talk about? Yeah. Start young. Um, Because of compounding, uh, starting young is so important. Um, The younger you start, the less you have to save to get to the same goal. Right. Right. And even if it's just, $100 $100 a month. Anything. Anything is good. Like even if you want to start $25 a week, like you said, 100 a month, you know, it's just one little bit that comes off. And I like I always tell people like, let's say you get paid on a Wednesday, have that money come out Thursday. So it almost becomes like a deduction in your head, like a CPP or an EI deduction where it's just right. gone. And you end up just adjusting your lifestyle for that. Instead of trying to save a $5,000 lump sum to right. write a check at the end of the year. Yeah, do it in um, small intervals, like you set up a pre-authorized contribution where X, like that's what I do is a little bit each week goes in. Right. I guess while you're doing that as well, if you're having it taken off or even if you do it yourself, Mm -hmm. you're buying in throughout the market as well. So you're not buying all that. If it happened to be, you just saved up $5,000. Now you just happened to buy at the high. Yeah. Because uh, your time in the market's a horrible idea. Yeah, it's the term for it's dollar cost averaging. Right. When you buy in constantly. So you're buying at all different prices. And then in the end, your average price should be cheaper than if you bought a lump sum at the same time. Right. Like I, I know people, they want to put a lump sum in and they're always like, well, when's the best time? <laughs> like if you're trying to time the market, the best people in the world have trouble doing it. So the average person's not going to do it. They might get lucky every now and then, but. Right. Well, you never know, like. What's today? June 1st. So Mm -hmm. the other day, like I was looking at NVIDIA and it's went up, I don't know, 150% this year, something crazy like that. And I'm like, well, you know, what goes up that fast must come down a little bit. It went up 25% last week um, on some huge news. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, wow, if I would have timed it and I was waiting for it to come down, well, I might have just made a a big mistake. Or if you're waiting for it to be the bottom. Right, you'll and be you, waiting. You're like, oh, this is the bottom, and buy in, and then it drops again. It, it, it's normal. Like it can go down, but when you think that, oh, this is the bottom, and then it goes down more, it almost has a level of disappointment to it. Right. Like whereas you can wrap your head around it going down, up and down. That's what stocks do. But when you think, oh, I've done this, you almost get a a sense of disappointment. It can put a bad taste in your mouth with investing. Well, you can do that and like be like, oh well. I would have been at, you know, 15,000 if I would have invested the one day, but now I'm only at eight. Yeah. And I I tell a lot of people just for their mindset, like anticipate when you put a new chunk of money in, 
in the next six months, that chunk of money might be down. Right. Below what you put in. Like realize that's going to happen. If it doesn't, fantastic. But typically, let's say even if it runs 5%, if you get a little quick 10% adjustment, you're down. Right. Like it might only last two days, but if you're the person that checks all the time, it's going to be down. So setting expectations and kind of, and that's where I, I really recommend people when they first get started, do it with somebody that can give you the advice, do it with an advisor uh, because they can help you through the emo- emotional turmoil easy on because at some point your money will be down. Right. So what is a good goal to have in the market? Like I said, if you're in some of these hot running tech stocks, mm-hmm. you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% a year isn't uncommon for some of them. Like look at NVIDIA again this year. It's for one up. year. Right. So yeah. it, should I be happy if I make 6%? Uh, so figure out what you want to make before you buy in. So if you said, okay, I want to hold this for 10 years and I want to average 8% over those 10 years, right? Then let's say you have a monster year. Well, now that can make up for a couple bad years, right? right? And the average is going to work out. So if you set yourself a goal, don't let emotions like, oh, I could have made more. I had a client do that last year to me. They're like, oh, I only made, or the year before, they're like, I only made 8%. This other one made 12. I should have made more. And I said to them, if I had told you on January 1st, you're going to make 8% this year. Would you have been happy? And they said, yeah. Then why does that change? Like set realistic expectations. If you outperform them, fantastic. But realize it's an average goal. Not every year you're going to hit that mark. So again, it's all about, it's a mindset thing. Because not every stock's going to be a winner. Not every stock's going to win every year. Even the good companies. Even the good companies have bad years, right? All it takes nowadays is one little bit of press like negative press, like, you know, I don't want to bring it up, but you look at Bud Light right now. Yeah. Right. Like it's very controversial. That's why like I'm not going to get into the details of it, but you know, bad press one way or the other and your company takes a massive financial hit. Well, didn't Corona take a huge hit during the coronavirus? <laughs> Just Yeah. Because of the name insane, but you know what I mean? Like that's com- completely out of their control. But, you know, sometimes something out of your control happens. Sometimes human error, people, people make a business decision and it doesn't always hit. And that's where, you know, you have those really big years and they help offset those bad swings in the average. That's why the buy and hold strategy works long-term because let's say you own Bud Light at the start of this year. It's lost a lot of money. Right. Is Anheuser-Busch still a good company? Do they still have a lot of good products? Do we think that this eventually will end? Of course. Right. And it's so it's still a profitable company. So I wouldn't panic sell it because it's going to come back. Right. It's like if Apple tanked 50% tomorrow for whatever reason, do you really believe Apple's going to disappear? Do you think they're going to come back? And that's why buying in a smart company, buying in a a profitable company, a good, a properly run company is going to work for you long term. Right. So everybody has a bad year. You want the company that has more good years than bad. So what I'm getting at as kind of like a little recap is dollar cost, dollar cost averaging, yeah. buy and hold. Don't get, don't panic sell. Mm-hmm. Um, just hold for the long term because you're better off doing that. Yeah. And buy good companies that are profitable. Consider ones that have dividends. Yeah. 
uh, anything else that I'm... Yeah, I'm and if you don't feel comfortable trying to pick those companies, the mutual fund route is fantastic because somebody else is picking them for you. Right, somebody who's very good and they're doing... Yeah no $100 million deals or more. Yeah. And, and like I said, to people getting involved, I know everybody talks about the whole fee story, but there, there are statistical benefits to working with an advisor on returns long-term. So if you're just getting started, you don't know what you're doing, it's your hard-earned money. Like get somebody to help. When you see your returns, it's net of any fees. A lot of fees happen behind the scenes, especially in the mutual fund world. So when you see 8%, you got 8%. You don't all of a sudden have to pay 2% more. What's the average fee for a so, advisor? Just well, so people aren't paying way too much. It, it all depends. Um, like some companies, it's based on assets invested. A lot of fee-based firms aren't going to work with a brand new person that doesn't have a lot of money because um, they have restrictions put on them. Uh, and that's where, like I said, the, the mutual fund type game is pretty good because if you have $100 to buy in, well, now you can buy into companies like Apple, Tesla. Stuff that's more than Stuff $100 that's a stock. Because you're buying into a pool. Right. Right. So if a mutual fund has a billion dollars in it, it has a billion dollars of purchasing power and your $100 gets to participate in that purchasing power. So it's a good way to get started. Um, and then if you get more comfortable, try playing with a little bit of money in the stocks, see how you like it. I wouldn't go all or nothing with it early on. Again, some people do very well. I'm just speaking from an average person perspective. Well, there's like a strategy where you can have like 90% of your money invested in solid blue chip companies, mm -hmm. those Procter's and Gamble's, those Apple's, the big yeah. ones. And then you could have 5% or 10% of play money where you yeah. can be a little bit more ris risky, a little bit more on the speculative stocks, mm -hmm. you know, like Space, um, Virgin Galactic yeah. um, or Fastly or something like that's going to have those big swings but are still yeah. potentially good companies well yeah and then you know you can always move more into it but you know risking five percent isn't going to make or break your portfolio right um like yeah it'll it'll not feel as good if you hit a if you hit a winner because oh look how much i lost but it's when you <laughs> don't hit that winner that you appreciate a more conservative strategy right i guess the, the way that i look at it is if if that speculative stock is so good I only need a little bit, but if it's mm -hmm. bad, that little bit isn't going to hurt me. Well, and that's just it. Like if you buy in when it's more or less a penny stock, right? If it, if you buy at 10 cents, 5% of your portfolio, you're getting a lot of shares. If it runs up to $2, that's a lot of profit, right? Even on just 5% investments. So yeah. And that, and we do a lot of uh, like rebalancing as well when we set up a portfolio approach with clients, because you know, you have a mix that you're comfortable with. If something does really good, something does really bad, the mix gets out of whack. You want to put it back into that strategic mix. Like that's what you're comfortable right. working with. I guess that's another big point is don't get too greedy because mm -hmm. that'll kill you. Yeah. It'll go up and you'll see it going up and it's addictive. I get and it. And you start dumping more money in. And but it'll go down just as fast. Yeah. If because, not faster. Like I said, good press can make a lot of money. Bad press can lose a lot of money. Right. So, or like a bad announcement, like a takeover. Things get bought up bought up all the time. And a lot of this, sometimes you can't even avoid some of this news because it all happens after hours when you can't mm -hmm. trade. When the markets are closed. Yeah. So you wake up and you're down 15%. Yeah, and you're like, well, now I have no choice but to hold. Yeah, well. <laughs> or take a big loss. If you can hold. Right. That's the smart play. 
but a lot of people panic and like, I don't want to lose any more and sell and take the fit. It's not a right. loss until you sell. You're just down. Or like, yeah. And I guess another one um, that I've done in the past and I wouldn't recommend it unless you really, really know what you're doing is that's playing with the bank's money margin. Yeah. That's, like, that's, that's risky. Like, cause they, they will make you pay back at a certain point. Oh, they'll call. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they don't call when things are going well. Like those debts get called when you're losing money. Of course. Right. So it's, it can really amplify your gains, but it can really amplify your losses too. Right. So again, it's the average person should stay away from that. Um, do your research on all that, but like investing on margin is a whole new level of risk. Yeah. We won't really even get into it. No. The, again, the average person should just stay away from that. Yeah. Um, like I, I don't invest my money on margin. Well, it's not your money. Well, no, you're just, but my money's at risk. Right. Right. The bank will not lose. Right. Like they wouldn't give you the money. It's how often do banks lose money? Not often. They're smart. It's like insurance companies. They don't lose money. Yeah. They pay out million dollar premiums when people pie. Like when people die, they pay out a million dollar death benefit and they're not losing. Right. (laughs) So, Okay. They're well, very smart business people. Like I, I don't bet against somebody that's smarter than you. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> Where can people get a hold of you online or what's your business? Um, yeah. So I'm under the industrial Alliance banner. Um, right now I'm going to be launching a new website in the next few months under uh, Brycon financial. If you look that up right now, you're not going to find it. Um, you know, I can, uh, give you my email address. Yeah, I'll plug it into the show and notes. And anybody can reach out. I don't charge people to talk. So if you want to just call me, set up an appointment to come in, discuss things, see if you like the feel, there's no charge. So I'm one of those, I think people deserve advice. I don't think it should be a luxury. I think anybody should be allowed to receive advice. So I always say to people, you know, let's meet. If, if it feels good, great. If it doesn't, I completely understand. You know, you can't take things personally when you work in this kind of industry, yep. so... No, that's fair enough. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope a lot of people got uh, a lot of good information from this. Thanks for having me. 